Welcome to the Talking Leaves podcast. I'm your host, Miss Kyra. And in this episode, we're doing something that makes me a little bit scared. Talking about poetry. Now, this is an educational and literary podcast, and I am an English teacher. So maybe it's a little odd that I'm afraid to talk about poetry, but I am. Even though I have a degree in English, and even though I've taught and designed a course called Poetry and Fiction, I'm still terrified of poetry. Poetry is this huge cloud or impenetrable fog that only sophisticated and genius people know how to navigate. And I am not one of those people. I'm not specifically trained in the art of poetry. Of course, throughout my degree and throughout all of my teaching experience, I've learned about poetry and what I need to know to be able to teach certain pieces. But I've always felt, and I know it's not right, but I've always felt that in order to talk about poetry, you have to have memorized Shakespeare or know everything about rhyme and structure off the top of your head. I know this is not true. I know this is not what I would tell my own students, but somehow I still have this insecurity. Even with this insecurity though, even with this fear, I still love to read poetry and I try to integrate poetry into my own classes whenever they fit our themes or focus. This year, I wanted to talk about a poem with one of my classes, and one student piped up and said, I hate poetry. It's the worst. This is all we read in my class last year, and I hated it. I didn't understand any of it. And I totally understood where the student was coming from. I didn't like poetry until I was an adult, until I had a class that made it approachable for me that let me see into this fog. So I thought for this student, for my previous self, I wanted to make podcast episodes about poetry that would help you focus on the beauty of it, the meaning of it, the power of it, as opposed to getting caught up in the lofty, unapproachable technical side of it. I wanna show you that you don't have to be a genius or poetry wizard to enter the conversation. Now, I'm not saying I won't do my research or that I won't look things up to make sure I know what the heck I'm talking about here. I'm not going to skip over anything. Or if I do, it's on accident because I'm only human. I will do my due diligence. And because it's my podcast, I can focus on the things that I find valuable, that I hope you'll find valuable. The areas and poems that I find interesting, that I think anyone can approach, And I'll admit there will be times when I don't know certain things about them or when I leave things out. Feel free to point those things out to me, nicely, if you will, or to suggest other poems that I take a look at. Nonetheless, I've decided this year I'm going to step into the things that make me scared, nervous. So that way I can show my students that learning can be uncomfortable, but ultimately it's worth the journey. If I'm asking it of them, I need to ask it of myself. So to kick this off, I've decided to talk to you about my favorite poem, which perhaps makes this even scarier because I want to make sure I'm doing it justice. It's my favorite poem after all. I can still remember the first time I read it. I was doing research for a class in my master's program. We were doing a project where we were talking about pedagogy and teaching, and we wanted to find a poem that we could integrate into our academic writing about learning 
that somehow idealized or encapsulated our view of education and learning. A poem that we could continue coming back to as teachers. One of the books our teacher recommended that we look into was called Teaching with Heart, Poetry That Speaks to the Courage to Teach by Sam Entrader and Megan Scribner. Now this is a fabulous collection of poetry, even if you're not a teacher, but especially if you are a teacher. In this book, I found the poem, a poem that spoke to me on a fundamental level, a poem that I can look to for peace anytime I'm going through difficulty or feeling overwhelmed. This poem is Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. Moving forward, we'll look at the poem itself and break it down. I'll consider different aspects, such as messages, structure, poetic techniques, and my favorite lines. So let's just get into this. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Hopefully you can feel the peace that emanates from this poem. Now, there are a few messages that I've pulled from this, and by no means do I have them all. There are likely more. But the ones that stand out to me are first, this poem reminds readers that no matter your struggles, life goes on. And not in a callous or unsympathetic way, but in a way that we're all together in this moving forward. We all deal with grief, it's part of life, and even though it feels like it, our life does not end or stop just because we're experiencing grief or difficulty. We will move forward. And as a side note, perhaps that's part of grief, our heartbreak that we will move forward and we won't move forward with those that we've lost or left behind. Another message that I've taken from this piece is the comfort of belonging. Even when it feels like we are disconnected and lost, we just need to take a step into nature to remember that we belong here, that we are a part of this world that offers so much to us. Finally, a third message that I found comfort in is the idea that we can let go of perfection, of social constructs of good that trap us, 
We can release others' unessential demands that confine us in the mundanity of life, and we can just live. I'm sure as you read this, like I said before, there are yet other messages that you can identify. Hopefully, whatever message you're pulling from this poem, you can find solace in it. It is a comfort. This is what I love about poetry. There is never one layer, never one meaning. We can each read the same poem and find different pieces of what we need within it. Next, let's take a look at the structure. This poem is written in free verse. It's a poem that does not follow a prescribed structure, such as a sonnet or a haiku. Instead, it flows and goes its own way. There is no rhyme. There are no syllable counts. It just is. And that makes it seem like it's structureless. But if you look at it visually, there is kind of an organic structure to this poem. It's all one stanza or one poetic paragraph. And within that stanza, it's broken into sections. There's a balance to it. The first three lines all start by addressing the reader, you, right? You don't have to, you don't have to, you only need to. And the next line is a command. The next three lines state something about the world, meanwhile. And then the last kind of continuous sentence, last couple lines, again, are a command or a request, a reminder of what the reader has the choice to choose. The repetition of these lines not only creates an influence as a structure, but also lends to a poetic technique. Repetition, the poetic technique of reusing a word, tone, or phrase for effect, guides the reader through the poem. You do not have to repeat at the beginning of it. This phrase releases the reader from their perceived obligations. It gives the reader the permission that they shouldn't need, and yet somehow we still do, to let go of that which does not serve us, that which holds us back, which makes us feel guilty and apologetic. Meanwhile, which is repeated three times, reminds the reader of two ideas simultaneously. And when I read this, I find comfort in that meaning. No matter the struggle or grief I'm facing, the world still moves, like I mentioned earlier. There is hope that I will soon be able to join that world in moving forward, in continuing life. On the other hand, this meanwhile also provides a sense of urgency. If we do not wake up and take advantage of this life, it will slip us by. We will miss the call of the wild geese, reminding us of our place. Don't forget, these lines say that life will go on, whether you want it to or not, so you might as well claim your place. Oliver also utilizes the poetic techniques of alliteration, anaphora, and enjambment. Yep, that is a word. E-N-J-A-M-B-M-E-N-T. First, alliteration. This is something that we actually kind of talked about a little bit. It's a form of repetition, but alliteration is specific to the beginning sounds of words that are said in quick succession or back-to-back. While there are some similar sounding words within this, the best example of alliteration is heading home. 
I've read other analysis of this poems, which list other examples of slight alliteration, but this is the strongest example for sure. And that idea of heading home, those sounds next to each other creates this really great effect towards the end of the poem. The next poetic technique, anaphora, is actually something that we did directly talk about earlier. Again, another form of repetition. But this is specifically a word or an expression that's repeated at the beginning of sentences. So in the first two lines, you don't have to. And then later on, meanwhile, the. This helps keep the reader focused and it helps emphasize what the reader and the audience needs to know. Directly addressing the reader and repeatedly calling them into the poem creates this sense of intimacy. You're talking to them. Oliver, or the speaker of this poem, is talking to you and reminding you of what's important. The next poetic technique, enjambment, is when the poet runs a sentence over into the next line. The sentence does not stop when the line stops, which forces the reader to continue going. They don't get a break at the end of the line. They have to keep going. We see this enjambment in several lines, two to three, three to four, and seven to eight. These lines do not have punctuation to sever them. And instead, this enjambment, or forcing us to move to the next line, pushes us forward. And it works really well for this poem because it echoes that message. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the poem goes on. It does not pause when we want it to, or at all. It keeps going. My favorite part of poetry, looking at the favorite lines. I'm going to be honest, every line is awesome, so we're looking at nearly every line. Whew, I'm so excited and so nervous. Let's do this. You do not have to be good. The word good here is key. I know this really bothers some people, and I'm going to be honest in my observations and acknowledge that they are personal observations, but it tends to be really scholarly people or older people that this misuse of the word good really bothers them. We throw this around a whole lot. When somebody asks, how are you doing? We usually respond, I'm good, or I'm doing good. Technically, that's not how we should use the word. Good is considered a moral word. So if you're saying I'm good, you're making a moral exclamation, not a statement about your well-being. Instead, we should say, I'm well. So with that little diatribe aside, this poem uses good in the moral sense. And by telling us in that first line that we do not need to be good, it releases us from the pressures or moral goodness right off the bat. This reminds us of the unrealistic expectations we have of ourselves or that others have of us to be perfect, of never making a mistake. It also reminds us to be honest with ourselves being good, morally righteous, is a human and social construct. We choose to participate in these constructs, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't. It's probably a good thing that we've developed a common sense of morality as a civilization. But they aren't natural, and sometimes they're condemning. They're heavy. They weigh on us. Sometimes we need to take a break from this judgment, especially those that don't align with who we are as individuals. We carry guilt or fear or resentment around this goodness or our lack of it. 
The speaker in this poem releases us from the weight of this moral judgment. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. Not only do we not need to be good, we also don't have to participate in constant self-flagellation of failing to be good. We do not have to kneel in forgiveness all of the time. We do not have to walk on our knees through the desert asking and begging for forgiveness. For me, this reeks of the biblical. I will admit I don't remember many Bible stories, so perhaps this is from a particular story or scripture. From my brief research, the desert does have an important function in the Bible, and the most populated response on the internet about walking through the desert had to do with the Israelites. Doesn't seem to fit here exactly, but maybe the illusion is enough in itself. I'm not going to go into that. I obviously don't have enough expertise to talk about those stories. Instead, I think this allusion to kneeling and repented is enough for me to make a connection to religion, whether Christianity or any other. Again, this follows up the moral heaviness from the previous line. As religion is often a main vehicle for instilling morality into people and cultures. And this reminds us, we do not always have to beg for forgiveness. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. This line is especially powerful. With any poem, we can't automatically associate the writer, the poet, with the speaker. Just like we don't associate a novelist with the narrator in the story. Instead, the novelist, the poet, is crafting a story. Sometimes the poems are biographical or autobiographical. Other times they're not. This could speak of Mary Oliver's own life in her decisions to follow her heart. If continuing with the religious hints from the previous line, this almost tells the reader that they don't need to follow someone else's morality at the expense of what they love. The speaker, nonetheless, is speaking to us about only allowing ourselves to love what we love, treating ourselves with softness, reminding ourselves of the inner heart. This line enforces the idea that you are only an animal. And as much as humans try to separate themselves from animals and nature, we busy ourselves and shackle ourselves to traps of various kind. But we need not. We are soft animals. Our only obligation is to love what we love. Do not deny yourself that love or feel like you must repent for it. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. This line, this wording, everything. So good. I just love it. This is not a complaint session. This is a meeting of hearts and minds. A deep connection, personal, individual connection. And for Oliver to accomplish that in a poem... Something that somebody would read on a page later, not even with her? That's incredible to be able to feel like somebody is opening up to you on such a level through a poem. The intimacy of this line further connects the reader to the heart of the poem. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, 
the mountains, and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. These lines, while they could be discussed separately, also function as a unit. As with many of her poems, Oliver uses nature to ground the reader. While the speaker and their audience are sharing their despair, their hurts, the world goes on. As I said earlier, this is comforting for a few reasons. No matter how you're suffering, life will continue. No matter your struggle, you can return to what's most important. And it may take time and maybe a friend to ask you about your despair. But life will go on. And in this line, in this building of intimacy with the reader, the speaker of the poem and whoever they're talking to are essentially in a bubble separate from the world. So they pull themselves out of time and around them, the world is going on and they're sitting and having their conversation, their heart to heart. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. This brings all of the comfort home for the poem. While earlier it seemed like the poet was in a small bubble with whoever they were talking to, sharing their despair, now the speaker talks to everyone, no matter who you are, no matter your grief, the world is here for you. The world is here for you. How powerful to see it this way. How freeing. The world offers itself to you, to your imagination. The world wants you here. It is inviting you out to play, to create, to be. And the world is calling to you. Don't you hear it? It is calling and calling just like the wild geese. Over and over, the world tells you your place in the family of things. This final line in the family of things tells everyone, you belong. You belong. You belong. For me, this poem is powerful. I think we all need a reminder that we belong in the world. We have a place in the world, in the family of nature, of the world itself outside of human constructions. We just need to listen to the call and heed it. If you liked this episode, please visit my website letters-leaves.com and reach out and let me know so I can make more. I'd love to hear what you think of the poem and what other poems you love and want to hear me talk about right here. Thanks for listening. Go answer the call of the wild geese.